Uh, we're going to continue our study of uh, Exodus. Um, if you have recently joined us and missed any of these sermons, um, they're available on the Facebook page. We haven't updated our, our website yet, but if you go to our Facebook page, they're available. So we've been on this uh, study for about almost three years uh, now. Uh, my professor in um, hermeneutics used to tell us, uh, don't do a series for more than a year because people lose interest. So I hope you haven't lost interest because we three years. Um, and I just can't help but to do it this way because there's just so much stuff uh, in the book. I just don't want to skip over it. Uh, I, I would tell you to just read it, uh, but I think that some of us, uh, first of all, some of us, we don't read. <laughs> I hope you do, but, uh, you know, uh, and, and it's hard to study uh, texts like these, even myself. Like, so, but in almost three years um, that we are in this part of the narrative, uh, God showed us uh, in chapter 14 how he finally rescued the Israelites from the grasp of Pharaoh uh, through the Red Sea crossing. Now, if you were here last week, we ended a mini-series on the Red Sea crossing uh, by looking at three things that we can learn about salvation, our salvation, from the Red Sea crossing narrative. Uh, remember, those three things were salvation is being saved from something. Salvation is a crossing over from one place to another. And lastly, salvation is accomplished by faith in God alone to save, but he does it, he always does it through a mediator. Right? So when that happens in a person's life, the, the objective crossing happens instantaneously. What do I mean by that? I mean that when the gospel is preached, when the gospel is preached and faith wells up in the heart of a believer, that person is right away justified, made right before God through the righteousness of Jesus. So even apart from any work that that person has done, faith welling up in their heart through the gospel makes that person justified right away. And that happened through the objective sacrifice that the Lord Jesus gave on the cross, right? Um, and then what happens after that is a lifetime of change and growth by the mercy and grace of God. Now, in this chapter, chapter 15, we're going to see the early stages of a person's salvation, okay? Those of you who have been saved, hopefully you remember this part, okay, of your salvation, the early stages Right? And we're going to see it through the story of the early stages of the Israelites' journey to the promised land. Uh, I've been saying this over and over again. Exodus is a mirror to our journey as believers. Okay? I hope you see that, the, the mirror. I hope you see the reflection in your own lives. So this chapter comes right after the Israelites made it across the Red Sea. And they witnessed how God defeated their enemies when the waters of the sea that were held back for them was poured on the Egyptians who were chasing after them. And the very first thing that the nation of Israel did after crossing over, okay, the very first thing that they did after crossing over from slavery to freedom, or you can say from death to life, the very first thing they did was to pray, sing, sing. They sang a song. I'm happy that you guys uh, did those two songs. Those are my favorite songs. Uh, some of my favorite songs. So there are, if you look at the Bible, there are at least 50 instances in the Bible where God commands his people to sing. Who here likes to sing? I didn't say the song liked you. No, who, you who likes to sing? People like to sing. I, I like to sing. I know some people don't. But in the Bible, it's commanded. We are commanded to sing. Even Jesus, before being crucified, sang hymns. Did you, did you know this? He sang hymns with his disciples. Check it out, Matthew 26, verse 30. Can you guys read that? Okay, not only do we not like to sing, we don't like to read either. Can you guys read that again? <laughs> Can we do this like uh, in unity? Okay. 
Okay, so before Jesus went up to pray in the Mount of Olives, before his crucifixion, what did they do? Sang a hymn. They sang. So again, me personally, I love music. I love singing. I was raised listening to music. That's why my musical uh, selection is like wide, from the Beatles to hip hop. <laughs> so I just like listening to music. I like singing. I was raised in that. Uh, in the Philippines, they always, every time that there's a family gathering, they always tell us, okay, whose turn to sing? They make you stand in front and make you sing, even though, you know, mostly it's karaoke, but sometimes it's a cappella, right? You have to sing. So we were raised in that. So for me, this command to sing, easy. I sing all day. Everything that I do, I always have my headphones on listening to, to music. Whether it's cleaning, exercising, riding a bike, I'm always listening to music. Um, so for me, this command is easy. Um, for others, it's a challenge. Uh, because not everyone can sing. <laughs> and the, the harder one is not everyone wants to sing. Right? Uh, but in, even in singing, uh, even in the singing, God still showed us some of his mercy and grace. Why do I say that? Because God did not command us to make a good noise unto the Lord when we sing. He says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord when we sing. So even if you can't sing, God is not like going to be like, oh, maybe you should just sit this one out because you can't sing. No, because God's command is to make a Joyful noise unto them. So don't sing grumbling, you know. That's not the command. So make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Uh, Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, was so passionate when it comes to congregational singing that he once said this, and I quote, A person who gives this some thought, singing, and yet does not regard it, music, as a marvelous creation of God, must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. And I would add the, the scratching of a chalkboard or the voice of his wife. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Some people, when they hear the voice of their wife, they say, oh, oh no, again, something, I have to do something. But even <laughs> Martin Luther said that the persons, people who hate music, people who don't see the value in music, that it's a marvelous gift from God, they shouldn't be called human beings. Because music is a gift from God. Right? It's a good gift from God. Um, and not only that, and I'll get into this later on, Music serves as something else. Um, what I hope to help you realize this morning's message, or in this morning's message, is that God has a good purpose in our singing. It doesn't matter if you can sing or not. Okay? Especially in our singing His praises as a congregation. So what is it? What is it about congregational singing that's so important? And I would argue so beneficial to those who participate in it. Ultimately, God's purpose in everything that he commands in Scripture is for us to praise, for, is for the praise of his glory. Okay? Everything that God commands us to do in, in Scripture is for the praise of his glory. But what we need to realize is that God's pursuit of his glory, or in other words, when God urges and commands us to glorify him, this is also his way of bringing us real and everlasting joy. Right? You guys realize that? That the commands of God, it says in the Bible, it's not burdensome. It's supposed to bring you everlasting, real joy. That is because the praises that erupt from the hearts which are made manifest through our songs is not just us praising God, but it's us completing our joy. The praises that erupt from the hearts from our hearts, which are made manifest through songs, is not just us voicing out our praises to God, but it completes our joy. What does that mean? 
Let me put it another way. If you experience some kind of joy without letting it out in praise of the object of your joy, your joy won't be complete. If you saw your wife this morning come out and she's all dressed up for church and you say, oh man, she, she looks beautiful. Without you saying something or without you reacting to that, your joy won't be complete. If you just sit there and just, your joy won't be complete. No, seriously. If you eat something that's really, really good and you don't say, oh, your joy won't be complete. Because God created that, designed us, so that when we praise, it completes our joy. A designed praise to be that way. So that our pursuit of joy and our giving glory to God can be one and the same. So when you pursue joy and you react to it with praise, you give glory to God, it's one and the same. Our pursuit of joy and our giving glory to God is one and, and the same. C.S. Lewis captures the essence of praise when he said this. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. You ever notice that? When you praise what you value, and you do, we do this all the time. When you praise what you value, you want other people to know about it. Right? Isn't she lovely? Stevie Wonder sang that. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she wonderful? Why does he sing that? Because he, she's, he saw somebody who's lovely and wonderful. He had to express it. Right? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do. When they speak of what they care about. So you don't talk about your wife. Talk about, ah, my wife. Ah. All she does is tell me to do stuff. Uh. If you value your wife, you sing that. Isn't she? But you fill in the blanks. I don't know how you. you know. <laughs> Isn't she nagging? Isn't she? <laughs> right? It's the way what you value. You sing about it. Psalmists do it. We all do it. We speak of what we care about. Or I would say we sing about what we care about. And then C.S. Lewis goes on to say, My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depend on my absurdly denying to us as regards to the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. Praising is not, you don't put effort into praising. It's, it's organic. It comes out, right? It just comes out because of seeing the thing that you value. It brings up something. And when that, that something comes up, you, you say it, you, you manifest it, either through singing or through your praises. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It doesn't just express it, it completes our enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. That's why we praise because we find joy in the things that we value. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Do you agree with that? You better, because we all do it. Uh, don't just think of that as uh, expressing joy in God. It's in everything else. Right? It's in your new hairdo. It's when you buy a new purse, shoes. Wow. Most of us, we, before we eat our food, what do we do? I hate that. No, because the food's getting cold. 
And people just keep taking pictures. Why do you do that? Because you want to show people. Look, look, I'm having. Some people, they post Jollibee. Like, why are you taking a picture of that? <laughs> it's not even good. <laughs> no, but people do that. It's, it's something in us that does that. It's innate. It's built in. We're designed that way. Right? The expression of praise in singing is what completes the joy of the one who is offering the praise. Now, in the same quote, Lewis said this, that he also noticed this, how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious or extensive or open-minded people praise most. Meanwhile, the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise least. Okay. Cranks, misfits, malcontents, Praise the least. I used to be the praise and worship leader. I used to lead worship. Every time I look at the crowd, I see those. Cranks, misfits, malcontents. Those people who are just miserable. They don't pray. They don't sing. Some of them don't even stand up. Just, ah, just get this over. Some of them purposely come late so that they miss the praise and worship session. And then they sit through the sermon, same attitude. Pissed off at something, just, just miserable. Grumpy Christians to show up to church. They, have this, they don't have this joy of coming to church. Right? They always feel like church is a burden. I always say to those people, why, why come? You just stay home. Right? You'll be most happy. So Lewis is saying that those people who show up to church grumpy and miserable are those who see no reason to rejoice. Right? Why do you rejoice? Because you have joy in seeing the thing that you value. When you come to church, who do you come to see? If your focus is on <laughs> other people, then I understand why you're miserable. I get it. If that's your purpose, if that's your focus. But if your focus is to fellowship with God, and you see his value, his worth, that's, that's where worship comes from, then there should be joy. And if there's joy, it comes out. It has to through praise and singing and worship. Right? So those grumpy, miserable people, they see no reason to rejoice, and therefore no manifestation of that joy through their lifting up their praises to God. That's why they don't want to sing. These are the same people who just want to get the congregational singing part of the service over with so that they can sit and be miserable while listening to the sermon. Now, if the singing of praises, if that's what it is, if the singing of praises is an inevitable and spontaneous manifestation and completion of our joy in the thing or the person that we value the most, the question is now, back to our text, how does Exodus 15 show us this truth? What, does the, what is the Israelites singing about? Answer to that question is the title of our message. The title of our message is they're singing about past victories and future expectations. Okay? So this morning we're going to take a look at these two halves of the song to see what these Israelites are singing. What's the, what are they so happy about? Right? And how it relates to our current situation and how we ought to respond. Okay? First, the praise of the Israelites is rooted in God's past victories. Exodus 15, verses 1 to 10. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble and the, at the blast of your nostrils the waters piled up 
The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Verse 10, you blew with your wind. Sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Past victories. The joy of the Israelites is in seeing God's past victories. The first thing to notice in the song's lyrics regarding God's past victories is that there is no mention of the plagues or the exodus. You guys notice that? They didn't mention. They didn't mention the ten plagues. Right? Focus is on, the focus of this song is on God's victory by the sea. Why is that? Um, I believe that this is due to the fact that the actual exodus itself is just a setup for this ultimate victory over the Egyptians in which God, once and for all, proved that he is the only almighty, all-powerful God. The exodus, him, him getting them out, it's a setup so that they would follow them across the sea so that God can put the sea over. The cross is the same way, right? If you remember that scene in the Passion of the Christ when uh, Jesus was being crucified, the devil was walking around uh, and he was, he was like laughing because <laughs> he thought he won. When Jesus was being crucified, he thought he won. Same thing here. The Egyptians, just to get rid of the Israelites, get rid of these people, they are plagued. They thought that, okay, now it's done. But then they realized, oh, man, we shouldn't have let them off that easy. So they thought, after the Israelites left, that that's it, it's over. But no, that thing inside of them won't let it go. So they chased after. And that's why, that's where God finally beat them. Right? That's the first thing. That's why, you don't, that's why the song doesn't sing of, oh, yeah, we the ten plagues and blah, blah, blah. And you made the water turn to blood. You... It doesn't sing about that. only sings about the, the sea and how God defeated the Egyptians through the sea. Second thing to notice. Salvation that the Israelites are singing about is solely attributed to God alone. Right? No mention of Moses anywhere in the song. And I made mention of this last week as well. When I said that the focus of the crossing and ultimately the salvation of the Israelites should not be on the quality of their faith but in the object of their faith. Remember I said that? So it's no matter how strong, you can have the strongest faith in the world. If it is anchored on something else other than God, that faith will fail. You have the strongest faith in money or the stock market. Fail. You have the strongest faith in your spouse. Fail. Your spouse can't carry your expectations. You have the strongest faith in the leadership of this church. Fail. Because we're going to fail. Just give me some more time. I'll fail. <laughs> I'm not promising you to fail. I'm not going to fail purposely, but because I'm not perfect. I can't hold on. I can't, you know, can accomplish all your expectations of what a pastor should be. So where, where should I faith, our faith be anchored to or on? God alone. He's the only one who can do all that. Right? That's the th second thing that we should mention. How the, that's the, the song of the Israelites attributed the salvation of the Israelites to God alone. That's why it's so important for us to know the God of the Bible. Otherwise, how do you know if you're anchored to the right God? Right? We have to know the God of the Bible through our study uh, of the Bible. Our eternal, our eternal destiny and lives depend on it. Because look how the song compares God's work to man's. Uh, 6 to 10. Exodus 15. Your right hand, glorious in power. Your right hand shatters the enemy. The greatness of your majesty, you overthrow adversaries. You send out your fury, consumes them like stubble. The blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. Flood stood in a heap. Deeps congealed, hard to see. Then look at what the enemy said. The enemy said, I'll pursue, I'll overtake, I'll divide. 
My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. Did it happen? No. That's man's work compared to God's. God will always fulfill. He will always accomplish what he set out to do. Man, what man wills and works, fail. Apart from God. Okay? I'm not saying that you shouldn't work anymore. If it's, on, if it's anchored to God, it will succeed. If it's not, there's a big chance it will fail. Third thing to note. Third thing to notice. How the song talks about how God triumphed over the horse and his rider. Okay, if you guys didn't notice that, it's mentioned in verse 1 and verse 21. That God triumphed over the horse and his rider. What is, what is this pointing out to? Uh, Matt Chandler, the pastor of the village church, points out that the mention of the horse and its rider is pointing to the agent and the instrument of Israel's slavery. The agent and the instrument of Israel's slavery. Who's the agent? Egyptians. Instruments, the horse. Points out to the agent and the instrument of Israel's slavery. So when God destroys both the horse and the rider, what is that telling the Israelites? There's nothing more to fear. These guys are done. Agent and instrument defeated. Right? There's nothing for God to fear for God's people. In the spiritual context, who's the horse? And who's the rider in the spiritual context? Rider is the enemy, Satan. Who's the horse? Death. Right? Somebody's phone is ringing. Okay. In the spiritual context, the horse and the rider is a pointer to Satan and death. Satan is the rider. Death is the horse. Both have been defeated by the blood of the great mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore... The believer has nothing to fear. That's why I said last week, should we still be panicking? When we're put in a situation where the danger is objective, then the danger is real. Should we still be panicking? Some people are still not convinced from last week's sermon. If the Lord... God has defeated the horse and the rider, Satan and death. What else is there to be scared about? Come on, tell me. What's the worst thing that could happen to you? There's nothing else to be scared about. That's why I said last week, we shouldn't really be panicking anymore. We shouldn't be anxious, Matthew 6. Right? Because God has defeated what we fear the most. First uh, John 4.18 talks about how there is no more fear in love, but perfect love, what? Finish it. The perfect love of God that was shown in the cross of Christ casts out our greatest fears. And most of us, that would be death and dying. The Israelites throughout this whole narrative of the Red Sea crossing came face to face with death twice, right? First, when they saw the Egyptians coming after them. Oh no, we're dead. Second, when they were crossing the sea with the wall of water on either side, they were crossing, oh no, and saying, oh no, we're dead. Twice they had to face death. But they made their way across, right? They made their way across. That Actually, that part of the where the walls are, we're walking through this wall of water. That reminded me of uh, Psalm 23, right? You guys know Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in path of righteousness for his name's sake. This part, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will... Fear no evil, for you are with me. Let's stop there. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We think about that, and I, I kind of think about that. On, like when you die, this is, this is where you walk. The shadow of death. But if you think about it, we're walking in that right now. Death's shadow is upon each and everyone here. We could all die. 
like that. Is there anything to fear? Says there, no. Why? For? And so when I asked you last week, is there a reason to panic? Is there a reason to be anxious? And you're still not convinced? <laughs> Let me give you another. Um, I think it's Romans 8.32. Romans 8.32. That Christ, uh, God has already given us Christ. The greatest gift. How will he not through him give us everything else? Is there anything more to fear? Maybe that's why we're not singing. <laughs> maybe because we're scared. Maybe because of that. Or maybe because we don't see how valuable, how big this gift is that we have been given through the gospel. I often think about what that journey to heaven would be like after taking my last breath. I would often imagine it be like walking through the valley, just like what I said, of the shadow of death. Um, but even then, the God of my salvation will be with me. His rod and his staff will comfort me. At the end of the valley, what, what does he do? He prepares a table for me. He anoints my head with oil. His goodness and mercy will be with me, and I will dwell in his house forever. Amen? So when you look back at God's past victories and see it by faith, joy wells up. When joy wells up, you sing, you praise, you dance. Some of us dance. I can't dance, so I just sing. Right? It comes out, it has to, if you see it. Okay? Let's move on to the next part of the song. 15, 11 and 12. <clears throat> It says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Right? Notice how this part of the song talks about God's holiness, God's being set apart, distinct among other gods. In verses 11 and 12, it talks about God's holiness. What sets him apart is his power. He's more powerful than all the other gods of Egypt. But look at verse 13. It says in verse 13, you have led in your, why doesn't it say power? You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So why is that verse not talking about God's awesome power? How is he distinct from other gods? From his first power. But verse 13 says, no, no, no. It's his steadfast love that makes him distinct. What does that mean? God's not only holy. He's not only set apart. In his, his power is compared to the other gods of Egypt. They're, they're nothing compared to him when it comes to power. But he's most set apart. He's most holy in how he loves his people. The original Hebrew word used here for steadfast love is the word kesed or hesed, right? Hesed. This word can also be translated as God's loving kindness. Actually, I think that's a closer translation to hesed, than steadfast love. Loving kindness. What does that really mean? Now, if you look at this word hesed, it is used in other parts of the Bible. It talks about a kindness shown to others in doing favors and benefits for them. So that's one part of hesed love. Kindness to show others, a kindness shown to others in doing favors and benefits for them. Or it is a kindness shown to those who are lowly or in need or are miserable. Isn't this the Israelites' status before? They were lowly, they were in need, they were miserable. God showed them hesed, love. But hesed is also translated as steadfast, as the ESV says. Right? So not only is hesed love showing kindness to those who are in need, it also speaks to the loyalty or the faithfulness of that act of kindness. That that act of kindness has no cost. It's just given out of the person's nature. And not only that, it is loyal. It is faithful. So it doesn't matter what these people did, 
or do is always going to be there. Right? Think about it. Before the parting of the Red Sea, what did the Israelites do? What were they doing before the parting of the Red Sea? They were enjoying the beach, and then they saw the, the Egyptians. What did they do? Start grumbling, panicking. Remember I said this last week too? If, that, if I was God and they started doing that, oh, okay. Get back. Forget you. But no, God's love is hesed, steadfast. It is an act of kindness, a faithful act of kindness. It is loyal. So one way we can look at this more clearly is with the covenant of marriage. During the ceremony, those of you who are married, you know the ceremony, the wedding ceremony, the covenant that the couple makes with each other is this. It's usually Hesed covenant. We don't realize it, but it's a Hesed covenant. That's, that's what it means in marriage, right? So when, when you get married, what do, they, what do the, the, the pastor or whoever is marrying ask? Uh, well, will you accept or will you take so-and-so to be your lovely red wife? And riches for richer for poor, sickness and health. What else? There's another one. For better or worse, till death do us part. You know how many rates of divorces are? 50% of people get married, get divorced. Why? Because the love that they profess during that covenant, not hesed. It's not loyal. So they say they'll do it. Sickness and health. The next moment the spouse gets sick, I'm out of here. I don't want to take care. Better or for worse? Oh, yeah, you gained weight. You lost your hair? I'm out. <laughs> right? You lost your job? See you later. Right? God's not like that. <laughs> God's has said love is some, one, I think it was Matt Chandler that said that. God's has said love is the perfect I do. What does he mean by that? Because when God says, I'll be with you, through all these things, sickness and health, riches for poor, right? All this stuff. Perfect. And there's no parting. You know, in marriage, till death do us part, no parting when it comes to God's hesed love. That's how loyal his love is. That's how steadfast his love is. It's the perfect I do, right? So when the Israelites sing about that, that that's what separates God from these other gods. It's because of his steadfast love. Because the other gods, if you mess up, you don't offer the right offering, you're out. Right? You're not included anymore. You didn't carry my statue up, up and down your street in the Philippines. <laughs> you didn't carry it. You didn't dress me up with a nice wig. You're out. But God is different. That's what separates him from all these other gods. It's this hesed. Love, actions and actions of love on behalf of someone in need and a sense of loyalty that inspires merciful and compassionate behavior towards one another. That's why I find it that if you're husband and wife, even if you're fighting, even if you're angry with each other, you will still cater to them. You will still serve your husband or your wife. Some of you are not nodding. Would, would you still, if you're fighting, right, and your husband is sick, would you still, you know, okay, do you need that thing, soup, can I cook for you, can I, or, you know what, <laughs> or just drive him to the hospital, leave him in, leave him in the emergency, have the nurses take care of him. <laughs> no, right? Like, even if you're fighting, husband and wives, if, if you're not this, you should go to couples. Because you need to learn what it means to be married. <laughs> right? There's that hesed love. You st even if you're angry with each other, you still serve. Um, I like how GodQuestions.org defines hesed love. It says, hesed surpasses ordinary kindness and friendship. It is the inclination of the heart to show amazing grace to the one who is loved. Hesed runs deeper than social expectations, responsibilities, fluctuating emotions, or what is deserved or earned by the recipient. Hesed finds its home 
in committed, familial love, and it comes to life in actions. So even if your kid, even if your child rebels, parents have said love, says that, no, you're still family. I'll still help you out. The message of the gospel, God's act of forgiveness and salvation in Jesus is rooted in hesed. Hesed describes this disposition of God's heart not only towards his people but to all humanity. The love of God extends far beyond duty or expectation. His forgiveness of sin fulfills a need that is basic to all other needs in the relationship between human beings and God. What is that? The restoration and the continuation of fellowship with God in Christ. God's hesed manifested in forgiveness makes a relationship with him possible. That forgiveness comes to us freely as a gift from God based on the sacrificial act of Christ. So the people of Israel were so blown away by that thought that a powerful being loved them like that. What did they do? Can't help it. They sang about it. They saw how God, even through their grumbling and doubt, parted the seas and once and for all defeated their enemies and led them with Hesed, love, the salvation. They saw that, they valued that, sang about it. Last, notice the final part of the song and how it talks about future victories to come. You guys see this? Verse 14. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have ceased the inhabitants of Philistia. Who, who, who lives there? Philistine. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed? If you read through it, they're going to pass by all these areas throughout, through, en route to the promised land. The chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan melted away. Terror and dread fell upon or fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still, you see that? They are still as a stone. When you're scared to death, you can't even move. That's what they're saying there. They're that scared. They are still as a stone till your people, O oh Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O oh Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O oh Lord, which your hands have established. Last verse. The Lord will reign Ever. So not only the, is there so singing rooted in past victories, but also in future hope and expectations. So I watch a lot of YouTube. I was telling this to the um, uh, Sunday school this morning. Some of the videos that are on YouTube are, are fuel. They're all fuel, right? Some of them are fuel for entertainment. Some are fuel for anger. Nakagalit yung ibang... Some are fuel for anger, while some are fuel for optimism and hope. One channel I recently subscribed to, I don't know if you guys watch this guy's channel, it's called Expedition Bible. Anybody heard of this? Expedition Bible. This channel, the creator of this channel, is a Christian archaeologist. So he uses, he's like Indiana Jones, but he's Christian. So the, 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 he uses archaeology to prove biblical narratives and prophecies. Do you know what archaeology is? It's digging up of ancient ruins to prove that that whatever civilization or whatever existed. So that's what he does. He digs up ancient ruins to prove biblical stories and prophecies. The most recent one I saw was when he went to Iraq to find the original spot of ancient Babylon, Babylonian Empire. The original spot where it used to stand. The main point of that video was to show how the prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah against Babylon all came to pass. What did Jeremiah say about Babylon? 50 verse 39, therefore wild beasts shall dwell with hyenas in Babylon and ostriches shall dwell in her. She shall never again have people nor be inhabited for all generations. That is more than 2,000 years ago Jeremiah said that. This guy went to the spot where he believed ancient Babylon is, and guess what's there? 
Nothing. There were hyenas, just like what he said in the, Jeremiah. There were hyenas there, owls, wolves, no people living there. Think about that. That God said that four, five, six thousand years, maybe even more before it actually happened. And up till now, that prophecy still remains true. So the second half of this song talks about that. Talks about prophecies. What will eventually happen. Forty years after the Israelites wander through the desert. What's going to happen? They're going to defeat these people. Right? In a way, this song is a prophecy again. To give the Israelites a glimpse of how God will work to fulfill his promise. To bring them to the promised land. That's why if you notice, uh, after that, um, the prophetess Miriam. Right? Referred to Miriam as a prophetess. Saying, uh, by the way, you didn't notice that at the end? Miriam, tambourine, started singing. And all the women were the men. It's the same here. <laughs> Sometimes the women are like all out singing. Men, no, I'm too cool for that. I don't want to cry. I don't want to. I want to raise my hand. Too cool for school. Come on. <laughs> Weren't you saved too? Right? You see that salvation? You see value it with joy? And you can't help it but sing. So sing. If you don't want people looking at you, close your eyes. So you can't see them looking at <laughs> Right? Because I, I know it. I, I speak from experience. I used to be the same guy. I want to praise. I want to do that. I just don't want to look like an idiot. You know, like, uh, that person is too much Holy Spirit in that one. I don't want to look like that because some people get freaked out by that. So I just, just, just calm it down. Keep putting my hands down. Don't cry. Don't. But I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> we have one audience. Amen? God. So who cares? Who cares what other people talk about you after service? Uh, this guy crying during the service. Yeah, so what? I just wanted to point that out. It's not, it's not in my notes. But that's just funny. How only the girls sang? The women? No, no men? But anyway, they're singing because of this prophecy. They're singing because God gave them more fuel for their faith to believe as they continue on to the promised land. It's to strengthen their faith. This part of the song is to strengthen the faith and confidence of the people of Israel in the God whom they follow and serve. In that no matter how much trials and sufferings they need to go through en route to the promised land, they already know how that journey will end. And that's another reason to sing. As Christians, we already know the end of this movie we call life. You already know. And that ending is secure. Why? Because of the God who made the promise to us. What's the promise? Those who believe in his son, though they die, yet they shall live again. So seeing the weight of that promise accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ, I think is reason enough for us to sing. Maybe not even here. Maybe in the washroom when you're taking a shower or, or in your car. When you drive, who does that in the car? Right? I do that in the car. I don't care people looking at me in the stoplight. So what? Because you do that with your favorite artist, right? Taylor Swift. You do that. You sing. Why do you sing when it's Taylor Swift? Why do you sing when it's you too? Why do you sing when it's, I don't even know these new people now. When it's Air Supply, those of you Air Supply generation. Why do you sing? Nothing at all. Why do you sing all that? <laughs> There's something in us, right? I just dated everybody here. Air supply, yes! <laughs> we sing because we see the weight. We feel it and we can't help but sing about it. And seeing Christ, the weight of his salvation should 
be reason enough to burst into songs of praise. Right? You are worthy of it all. You sing. You are worthy of it all. For through you are all things, and through you are. Is that right? And through you are all things. You deserve. What's the other one? Worthy is your name, Jesus. You deserve praise. Worthy is your name. You sing that all day because it's true, right? Well, it's true if you, <laughs> if you see it as that. I hope that our singing is not just a, an act of showing people, oh, look, I can sing. I'm singing with everybody else. I hope it's organic. I hope it's something that dwell, wells up in us that we can't stop because of how we value and see goodness of God to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, and then we sing it out. Amen? Let's pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. And give you peace. And give you peace.